So the first thing we want to consider this morning as we look at uh, these three portions, love, joy, and peace, is this idea of love, a love so amazing. And the reason that we have to start out with love and the reason that we want to start with love at all times is because that's kind of the thing that we're chasing after, right? That's everybody wants to feel loved. Everyone wants to feel accepted. Everyone wants to feel that they're accepted before, uh, before God and for, before one another. But it always, it wasn't always that way. We know that in the Garden of Eden there, as uh, Adam and Eve were, were having fellowship with God, they walked with him in the cool of the day. As they were there enjoying God, as they were, as they were enjoying all of creation there with him, there came a point where, where God broke down to them, you know, there, here's a specific tree that I don't want you to eat the fruit of. All the, everything else is open to you. I've given you all that you see for you to enjoy and, and you to consider. But this one thing I want to protect you from, I don't want you to have that. And then we know that Satan came in in the form of a serpent and he began to speak, as the Jesus Storybook Bible calls it, the terrible lie. Okay, And the terrible lie is, is that God doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't, he's trying to keep things from you. He wants, he wants to, to withhold from you. And ever since Adam and Eve believed that terrible lie, ever since th- that uh, they received that into their hearts and they said, yeah, we should have that. He doesn't want us to have that. Uh, you know, ever since that happened, we have had that, that um, lie within our hearts and Satan speaking that to us, that God doesn't love us. He's not wanting to, to bless us and give to us and, and meet our needs. He doesn't love you. And although we, we don't like to admit it, it's the, it's the thing that kind of sits in our heart that we're constantly arguing against. It's, it's the root of, of self-pity, where it's like, well, you know, oh, you know, I don't, uh, I should, I'm looked down upon on, my, on myself, or, or I don't deserve this, or like, I'll, I'll die to myself in this situation because, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. But it's really out of, rooted out of the fact that, that God couldn't possibly love you. And that gets carried over into our relationships because we don't believe that God doesn't love us, because we, we don't believe that God loves us, because that, that exists in our mind and we entertain that, then we take that and apply it to everybody else. Now, of course, we're sinful and we're humans, and so there are situations where like, we get annoyed with each other and we don't love each other, and we're not really having the type of love that God has. But yet, Christ came to bring that love. And he came to put that love back in our hearts and to demonstrate it. And this morning, we want to look at God's love, a love so amazing that he did, he moved heaven and earth in order to show that love. And we're not just going to talk about, um, you know, we don't want to just talk about what Romans 5, 8 tells us, that God demonstrated his love. He showed that he loves us in that while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. But we want to look at it through uh, this Old Testament prophecy. We want to look at it through what God had to do to show his love, to make a way. Now, there's many Old Testament prophecies that exist, uh, you know, that speak of the coming of the Messiah, that speak of uh, Christ's arrival and things that had to happen in the right way. You know, we know one of those things is that the Messiah had to come from uh, the line of David, the house of David. He was a a Davidic Messiah. And so he had to be born in a a certain sense, uh, in a certain city, or uh, not in a certain city, but he had to be born from a certain family specifically. And so one of those things, uh, those things are things that like, you know, it could have been anybody on the earth, 
you know, we kind of narrow that down to people who were born from that genealogical line. It's important to do that. And so uh, there's kind of a, a supernatural element to that, but there's also a natural element. But one of these things that we want to look at uh, is a supernatural element to that prophecy. One of the things that is said in Micah 5.2 is that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In Micah 5.2, the Old Testament speaks of, it, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So there's the Old Testament prophecy, and then we have the New Testament fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2, uh, and we also see it in, uh, in the book of Luke. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus, or, or, uh, Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So we see there that this prophecy has been fulfilled in the book of Matthew, that Jesus is born in the city of Bethlehem. Now why is this like a big deal? You know, you know Joseph, Mary, like... The, the, part of the problem is that they weren't uh, that they weren't living there. So how did they end up in Bethlehem? Well, uh, the book of Luke tells us in, in uh, chapter two, verse four, he picks up and Joseph also went up from Galilee. This is uh, uh, Mary's husband from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, this is a huge deal, and, and this demonstrates God's love for us. It demonstrates that it wasn't just like, oh, well, I'll just pick any kid who happens to be born in that city. Like, you're from the house of David or whatever. You know, you were born in Bethlehem at that moment. Here's what happened. During the reign of Caesar Augustus, the Romans reorganized their administration in different areas. And they carried out fresh censuses for the purpose of taxation. They wanted to raise their taxes. They wanted to reorganize everything. And so Rome said, you know what? We need more money. We need to demonstrate our might and our power. And so we are going to have our way and we're going to have all of these people re-register so we can tax them more effectively. Now, what happened was that order goes out, but then the Jews resist for like some period of time because like they're like, we're not going to be under Rome and like Caesar and we're not going to, we're not going to do this. And so they withhold for a period of time. In the meantime, Mary is pregnant and like, you know, uh, some scholars think that they resisted for like two to four years before they actually went and did this. Like before they were like finally like, all right, like I guess we have to go do this. Otherwise we're going to start getting killed. And so finally what happens is the, uh, because of this, this imperial decree, this brings Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, the long prophesied uh, location of the birth of the Messiah. They were, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. They were from a totally, they, they were in a totally different city. Their hometown was there, but yet they have to be registered in a totally different uh, city in the location of their family lineage. And so, here, God uh, works out his love for us by making a way for the Savior to be born in the city by putting it within the heart of Caesar Augustus to demonstrate his supremacy over the Roman world. He's like, 
you want us to use boss? I'm going to like show you. I'm going to make you guys all register. I'm going to upheave the whole kingdom. I'm going to put everybody in transit so I can get more money. But we see that from God's perspective, Caesar was merely, you know, a, a king whose heart was turned. The, the book of Proverbs tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And so Caesar thought, like, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm showing off. I'm, I'm, I'm exercising my might and my power. But the Lord knew that he was turning the king's heart. He was making a way to demonstrate this love. And so he caused millions of people to be in transit for the sake of fulfilling prophecy. He loved us with a love so amazing that he was willing to be like, everybody in the whole empire has to go do taxes. We hate the IRS. It would be sucky if we had to, like, travel to the area where, you know, we were... Uh, where we were born or where our family was, was originally from just so we could do our taxes there. It'd be awful. But the Lord did that for our sake. He, he, he put Mary and Joseph in transit with the Roman IRS so that way they, that Jesus could be born at that time in that city. Now, the second thing we see in Matthew 2 is a star. The Lord gave this star. Okay, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So who are these wise men? Well, they weren't like the three kings, like the song. Uh, they weren't actually kings. They were most likely astronomers or uh, astrologers. Um, and, they, and they came from the east. They were people who were uh, wise men who looked at the stars and could kind of tell uh, what was coming. They were able to advise kings and rulers. And uh, they came to Jerusalem, it tells us in verse 2, because they saw his star when it rose, and they have come to worship him. So, so perhaps they knew the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, uh, things that we find in Numbers 24, 17, uh, where Balaam, you remember Balaam, who was riding the donkey, and, uh, you know, the angel showed up, and Balaam's, like, beating on the donkey, and he's trying to go through, and then he finally gets there to the king where he's supposed to, uh, you know, the king's trying to get him to speak uh, curses over the children of Israel, and he only speaks blessings. Well, one of the blessings that he speaks, and one of the prophecies that he speaks is in Numbers 24, 17, a star shall come out of Jacob. This is a metaphorical star, obviously. Uh, in that sense, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So it's talking about this, this star. Now, uh, so these wise men, they see this star. They're like pumped. They're, they're, looking at the, they're looking at the skies constantly. That's their job. And they're, they're pumped, you know, and they think they're making this awesome scientific discovery. And maybe they see it and then they're like, oh, we got to figure out what that is. And then they, perhaps they trace it back to uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy. Um, but what, what's going on with the star? So there's many different suggestions, natural, uh, natural suggestions for uh, the origin of this star. Uh, some people say it could be uh, Jupiter and Saturn, you know, uh, combining at a certain, a certain point in the sky that makes for uh, a, like a giant looking kind of star that uh, would be an anomaly in the sky. Other people say it could be a supernova or a comet. Um, it, it could be something of that sort. But whatever it was, it's important for us to note that it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just a, a, an anomaly. It wasn't just like, hey, there's a star. The Lord knew that these wise men, these, these astronomers, they would be searching the sky. And so he said, 
something awesome's happened, and I'm going to speak to you in your language about it. You're constantly looking here, so I'm going to put something right in front of you that says, I love you. Come figure out what this is. Here it is. I'm going to, I'm going to put something there for you. And so these wise men, they're guided by this star to uh, the city of Jerusalem. It, we look in Matthew 2, back there again, in verse 9. They went to King Herod, and uh, he told them there, uh, you know, well, uh, they come to King Herod, and they're like, hey, we saw this star, and we, uh, we know that it's associated with the king of the Jews, and he's, he's born, and so we want to uh, find him, and King Herod's like, yeah, well, let me know where he's at, so that way I can come and worship him too. Not really, but here's what happens. Matthew 2, verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So we see here that not only did they see this star, but in verse 2, it says that the wise men say, we saw his star. They, they know it's associated with Jesus. They know it's associated with the king. It's not just any random star. They're like, we saw his star. This star is created for, uh, for Christ. When it, uh, they say, we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. The purpose of that star was to point people to Jesus, to point the wise men to Jesus. And so God purposefully put this star in the sky. And look at what it says. They, they, saw, the, um, they saw that the star rose before him, and then it came to rest. It like moved in front of them. So I don't think that it was like really any sort of natural star, personally. I think it was probably like a supernatural event where the Lord's like, I'm going to take this star, I'm going to put it right over. Because how far could you follow a star? And how, when you're under a star, you never actually like... Oh, yeah, that's directly over this. It's always, like, out in front of you. So this comes to rest exactly over the place where the child was. Now, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they saw the sign that pointed to Christ, they were joyful. You see that? You catch that? When they saw this thing that pointed to Christ, they were pumped. They were excited because they knew that they were being led to uh, this great king. And so they followed a star that moved in the direction of Jesus. And so because we see just, just from these two little things here, uh, you know, looking at this, this census that God moved, you know, millions of people all around to deal with the IRS. It's like the worst thing ever. He moved them around because he wanted Jesus to be born in a specific place at a specific time. And he, he creates this star to point people to Jesus. There's just two small examples of his love for us. And so when we, that, that terrible lie enters into our heart that God doesn't love us, we can see he made, he made people, you know, millions of people back in the day deal with the IRS so that way he could show us that he loves us. He made, uh, you know, a star that, that pointed people to Jesus so that way they could go exactly to the place. And when they enter in, they, they go into the house, they see uh, Jesus there, and they fall and worship him. Now, Luke goes on in his account uh, and picks up in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, and speaks of this event, uh, of the birth of Christ. It says there, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And so, in Luke's account, he gives us the birth of Christ, and then immediately an announcement, right? Whenever you have uh, a birth, then you kind of got to do like your announcement. You do, you know, these days we just do like an Instagram. You know, it used to be like you put something in the paper and then everyone's like, oh, awesome. And it's like this really awkward baby photo in the newspaper. Now, you know, it's all customized. And everyone's spending all their time. You get like a birth announcement within like seconds of the actual uh, birth these days. And that's what, kind of what's happening here. Every, following every birth, there's a birth announcement. And so we have these angels showing up. And these angels speak to us of the event, but they say that this event is has brought joy for all people. It's a great joy that will be for all people. Now, we've said before that joy is not circumstantial. Here, uh, you know, we, we, we said that, that happiness is circumstantial because you can be happy and you can experience moments of happiness, but then, uh, and, and happiness is a good thing, but then there's also moments where you have joy or that, that you want to build your life upon joy because joy is something that is lasting. It's not uh, built upon circumstances. And here, the joy that these angels speak of deals with the inbreaking of the infinite into the finite. It's the internal, the eternal breaking into the temporal. That's what they're speaking of. That's why they can say that this is, this is great joy. It's not just great happiness, because it's, it's uh, an infinite being. It's Christ entering into a finite timeline. It's important to note that, that we're dealing with the infinite, we're dealing with the eternal, because we hear in John 17 that Jesus tells us that having that eternal life, knowing, uh, or having uh, eternal life is knowing him. It's connected. Eternity, uh, infinite nature is connected to knowing Jesus. In John 17, 3, he says, and this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life equals knowing Christ. And so this announcement is one that deals with eternity. It deals with uh, an infinite uh, amount of time because we're dealing with Christ in our timeline. Now, Luke goes on to tell us about this great news. In Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For unto you this day... Or unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the joy, this great joy that's for all people, is found in Christ, our salvation. And we receive that gift through, of salvation through relationship with him. Therefore, knowing, or therefore, our joy is knowing Christ. This is exactly what Paul has said. You know, that we just looked at in Philippians, that his contentment is, is knowing Jesus. He rejoices in the Lord. He's focused upon joy in Christ because in that, he knows that there is eternity. He knows that there is an infinite relationship that will carry on forever. Joy is knowing Christ. Okay, I want you guys to understand that. Uh, I want you guys to get that because the psalmist makes this clear Additionally, in Psalm 16, right? Here, here's how it describes, uh, describes this in Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. So Christ's 
makes known the path of life, or where God makes known the path of life, in your presence, there is the fullness of joy. When you're knowing Jesus, when you're with him face to face, when you see him face to face, that's the absolute fullness of joy. You have him before your eyes, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, uh, Luke wants us to see here, and these angels want, want us to see that this joy is, is everlasting. It's eternal. It's for all people because unto, uh, unto us this day is born in the city of David uh, one who is Christ the Lord, one who will save us, who will give us his righteousness, and, and we will give him our righteousness so that we might have that eternal relationship with him forever. And so our joy has to be found as, as he says here, this joy is for all people. It's, it's for everybody to have. And then he goes on a little bit further in, uh, after telling us about this great joy in, in verse 11. And he tells us in verse 12, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So right after that announcement, uh, or after that, after that um, moment there, then we show up with like the background choir in verse 13. And suddenly there was, uh, uh, was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So that the, the angels... They, they sh- he's giving this announcement, and then all of a sudden, like, mass amounts of angels show up behind him, filling the skies. This is, like, you know, the greatest surprise ever. They, they show up behind him, and they're, they're shouting. They're, they're praising the Lord with the saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those uh, with whom he is pleased. Now, it's important for us to, to look at this also within the context of the shepherds hearing this because the shepherds were pretty much they were super low on the totem pole within that culture you know it was like basically uh you know shepherding was like this the most blue collar job it was like the equivalent you know basically of uh you know of like a your job is like working with porta potties all day it was basically like shepherding that's how society looked at you like oh you're pretty much dirty all the time. You're with animals all the time, and you're a loner. That sounds like fun. Uh, and so, here, shepherds, you know, they were constantly under attack. They were constantly uh, facing the, uh, you know, uh, criticism of society. They were fending off animals, and within that, they were also operating within the oppression of the of the, the empire of Rome. And so, Rome was was. Uh, always promising peace that was you know a part of their uh part of their culture pax romana was the, the peace that rome brings and and they will crush any uh any opposition that comes and they will bring peace to that region but here uh these angels and, and uh, luke is contrasting for us the peace of god the peace that that only jesus brings with that with uh those of the roman authorities that's what they're kind of looking at this lens through like you know, these shepherds are like, their minds are blown because they're promised real, lasting peace. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, the, 
the word that he uses here is connected to the Old Testament word shalom, you know, which we've talked about before. It speaks of peace and prosperity and welfare. It's, a, it's an opportunity for rest. It, it's not just a, a lack of, of um, it's not a lack of uh, anxiety or a lack of conflict. It's, it's much more than that. And so here, uh, the word that they use is is connected to that. It's speaking of a well-being, a harmony, a security that exists uh, within a, a person. And so he says, peace, the angels say, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, there's a qualifier there, right? It's not just like peace among anybody, but peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, we know that the only way to please God, in Hebrews eleven six 6 uh, tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so the way to have that peace is to please God through faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so when we're trying to save ourselves, when we're trying to, to um, find salvation in our own sufficiency, that when we have self-sufficiency, we're claiming God's glory for ourselves. That's what's happening. You're saying, I'm going to save myself. I'm save myself. I, as, as creation, I'm going to do this for myself. We're pointing to our own sufficiency. In Romans 1, it describes this as worshiping creation rather than the creator. And so when we're trying to save ourselves, we're worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping a creation rather than the one who is the creator. However, we please God when we recognize that we can't save ourselves, and instead we find our foundation or our salvation through faith in Christ. When we recognize God as the Creator and that we can't save ourselves, we properly and rightly give Him the glory that is due to His name, and we place our salvation in faith in Christ's work. Right? Notice the first part of what the angels say here. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. If we don't give God that glory first that belongs to him, we're never going to experience the peace of God because we'll never please him. Because we won't be operating in faith. We'll be operating in our own salvation, in our own uh, sufficiency. But when we rightly recognize that God is the only one who can save us, when we give him that glory, when we first stop at the first portion of that phrase, glory to God in the highest, then and only then will we experience the peace of God. Because peace is a right standing before God. It, 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 that's what, it, that's what it, it means there, that we're, uh, we can be before God and we can experience the peace of God. But it essentially means, to put it in another way, to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's this lack of fear, lack of worry that when we stand before God, we're not like, oh, great. Like, is our stuff going to stand up? But we know that it will because we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. Now, in Isaiah, we see that the only way to have this peace that is promised is to find it in the peacemaker. Isaiah 53 tells us in uh, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's through his wounds, through his punishment, through his, uh, through his uh, discipline there that we, or not, not discipline, uh, through his um, sacrifice on our behalf that we have 
been given peace. Because of his work, he is the one who has made peace with God for us. That's why he's given this title in Isaiah 9-6, speaking of the birth of Christ. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's given the title Prince of Peace because the peace has been made by Christ. It goes on in verse 7 to speak a little bit more about it. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So not only is he the prince of peace, it's an ever-increasing peace. It will, it will continue of, uh, on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So peace can only be found in the peacemaker when you rightly recognize that he has saved you and you cannot save yourself. When you give glory to God as a creation worshiping a creator, then you can experience the peace of God. You can find that peace in the peacemaker and be under his rule and reign. You can be a part of uh, this wonderful government that has no end to its peace. Now, we wrap up in Isaiah 35. Flip over there because we're just going gonna to finish with this. And this speaks to all three of these things. Isaiah 35. The first portion that we look at deals with our state that we're in currently, our sin. You know, the, it, it deals with our situation before we know the Lord, what it feels like. Now, he starts off there. Hang on. In verse 1, 1 through 3, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing the glory of Lebanon uh, shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees there. So we're currently, you know, it, it tells us in verse 1 there, the wilderness and the dry land. It's that stage that we're in. There's, there's this wilderness that, we're, that we've experienced before we know Christ. There's a, a, a dry land in our soul. Things are broken. Things are not how they're supposed to be. There wasn't ever supposed to be weeds or hard work. There wasn't ever supposed to be pain. And that happened in that moment where they believed the terrible lie. They believed that God did not love them. But then God does love them and he moves heaven and earth to be with us. In verse 4, he goes on and says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, right? That's the anxiousness is the result of sin. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So he, he has come, he will move heaven and earth to make a way to save us, even at the cost of his own son. He will demonstrate his love, not only through the fulfillment of the prophecies, but at the expense of his only begotten son. He demonstrates that love to us upon the cross. 
He, it tells us there that it will, he will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. There's, somebody has to be punished, and that is poured out upon Christ. Then we see in verse 5, the area speaking of this great peace that comes as a result of God's salvation and his restoration. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty grounds springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it, for they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. So here we see the results of this peace that is brought uh, forth as God brings salvation. He is in the process of restoring all things. And he tells us there, here's the results of the peace. There's waters that are held back, they break forth. There's streams that appear in the desert where there was dry land. We begin to see, uh, you know, water and refreshment come again. Burning sand becomes a pool. Burning sand is not like lava. It's actually speaking of, you know, you see sand from far off at a distance and it's on fire. They're not on fire, but it's, but it's really hot. What does it look like? You see those little rays coming off? That's where like mirages are born. So it's speaking of like a mirage. So like you're, you're fooled into thinking there's something great over there. You know, this, this false promise of, of, of uh, you know, this thing I see off in the distance, God says, I will bring it to pass as a reality. You won't only see a, a, a mirror of, of what could be there. You wouldn't, it won't only look like there's water there. There will actually be water. I will put that there. I will restore this, uh, this pool of water. He goes on, he says, dry grass will become reeds and rushes. Those are things that grow by water, um, and they uh, flourish there. There's a highway called the way of holiness. This is actually, not just actually talking about, you know, like a traveling path. I mean, it, it, it is, uh, but in those days, you know, any sort of carved out road was like a, a huge benefit, because otherwise you were just walking through random wilderness. But if there was a, a way that was made, it was cleared out for you of, of any obstruction or, or any uh, trouble, you could make your way quickly and easily in safety. But here, this way actually means not just a highway in terms of a sense of there's an actual road, but it's actually a highway. So it's, it's raised up. You can see. Uh, you, it's, it's above things. And so you can see anything coming around. It, um, and it's an actual road that's lifted high. He goes on to say, there's no danger. There's, there's no lion or ravenous beast that can come up onto this highway. And so when we stay on this highway, we're made safe from all because we've been made clean by the work of Christ. When we stay upon that. And even those, it tells us, who are fools, they won't go astray. Like they're on it, you know, but you are, you're saved, you're, you're uh, captured by the blood of Christ. Um, and, and that's so comforting because <laughs> I feel foolish a lot of times. Um, and then he goes on here to speak lastly of this joy in verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy 
and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Ultimately, all sorrow, all sighing is gone. Everlasting joy marks them. There's singing. There's this gladness that is about uh, the people. These people who have been ransomed by uh, the Lord's work. He says, he will come and save you. He's going to save by his own hand. He's going to accomplish this. And as the result of him accomplishing it, we will experience that joy. So Isaiah 35 here, it kind of gives us uh, the background, or it kind of does the, the reverse of what we kind of looked at. Um, you know, we first started off looking at love, joy, and peace. And here uh, we, we see that as the result of Christ's work, because of, because of his, uh, his work upon the cross, because he has saved us, we can have uh, joy in him. We can have that eternal uh, relationship with him. And because we have that joy in Christ when we rightly recognize him as God, when we rightly recognize him as our Savior, then we can experience uh, the peace of God. And when we experience that peace of God, then you know, we're free to love as he loved. We're free to, to show that love to other people. And so we want to experience the joy of Christ. We want to experience the peace of Christ. And then we want to go out and show the world that the terrible lie isn't true. That God really does love us. And he demonstrated it through his son. He demonstrated it through the work of the cross. He demonstrated it through arranging all of this before the foundations of the world that we might know and enjoy him forever. Right? And so we end with that confession of... Uh, uh, the Westminster Catechism, you know, there. What is the, the, chief, uh, the chief end of man? It's to uh, know God and to enjoy him forever, right? Know him and enjoy him. Paul had it right. Joy in Christ, contentment in him. He, his only goal was to know Christ and to glorify him. And so uh, that is the point of Christmas. That's the, the point of the preparation of his coming. It wasn't just this happenstance to make all these things, uh, you know, so that way we can have uh, one day where we celebrate, but it's a season. Uh, it's years and years of preparation of the Lord saying again and again, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I want you to experience joy and peace along the way as you, uh, as you know me, as you enjoy me, as you uh, worship me. And so as we've considered Scripture this morning, we kind of look at it through the lens of the star, right? purpose of the star was put there for a purpose at a moment so that way it might lead us to worship Christ. So that we would look at Scripture, that we might look at the Word this morning, and then it might say, look at how beautiful Jesus is, look at what he's done for us, and now let's come and kneel and worship before him. And so let's, let's do that, let's take a moment, um, and we'll pray, and uh, we'll respond together. Lord, we're thankful for your Word. We pray that you would uh, remind us of these things this Christmas season as we go about in culture as we go about in, um, in the city and we deal with our families and traditions and uh, the things that uh, have um, been rooted in our lives through, um, through family and uh, you know, social events. Lord, we want to rightly recognize that you are the creator and that we are just creation. Lord, we want to uh, approach you, Lord, um, with humility, knowing that you love us. Lord, and we pray that you would reveal to the world this Christmas season 
uh, how much you love them. Lord, to our friends and family, we don't want them to believe this terrible lie. Lord, but we want them to see Jesus as uh, the beautiful, um, loving Savior that you are. And so help us to put Christ on display in this uh, Christmas. Lord, we want to make much of Jesus. And so, Lord, be exalted um, in our lives. We pray that you would call us to worship. A life of of responding to you um, in worship. We love you. Amen.